Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello everyone, I am Sarah Tutton. I'm the Senior Curator here at ACME. Thank you very much for joining us this evening um, for this panel discussion on the art of dissent, which, as many of you know, is part of our China Up Close series program. Um, I want to introduce our panellists, who I've made sit in this order because this is how I wrote down their bios today. And as we're not giving presentations, we're just having a chat. Um, it's fine in this order. So we have here Tammy Wong-Hulbert, who is an artist, curator and academic. Um, Tammy completed her PhD a few years ago um, on the city as a curated space, um, looking at public art activity, particularly in Melbourne Central and Sydney. Tammy has also worked as a curator um, in Sydney at Customs House and at a small not-for-profit gallery. Um, she's also an artist and has a studio here in Melbourne. Mm? And in Beijing. And she's also worked in Beijing and she lived there in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. working in publishing, um, particularly for an online English language arts-focused magazine. Mm -hmm. um, we then have Dan Edwards, who is also an academic, um, a writer and a journalist, and currently teaches Asian cinema and media at Melbourne University. Dan finished his PhD a few months ago in mid-December um, and has jumped quickly into teaching. Um, and his um, PhD is about to be published by the Edinburgh University Press um, as a book, Chinese Independent Documentary, Alternative Visions, Alternative Politics. So hopefully Dan's going to give us a little bit of a context this evening about Chinese documentary and how that Ai Weiwei's work fits into that, but also how a film like this that you've just watched fits into that. Um, Dan lived in Beijing more recently. Um, and in From 2007 to 2011. Yep. Um, and also worked in um, publishing. Um, he also um, works for Melbourne International Film Festival and curated the Street Level Visions program of Chinese documentary in 2012. Um, Aaron Seto to Dan, um, is the director of 4A in Sydney. 4A is a Centre for Contemporary Asian Art um, and really was one of the first organisations that started programming and I suppose advocating for Chinese, oh, for Asian art, Asian Australian art in um, Australia. Um, Aaron's curatorial work revolves around the Asia Pacific region and the impact and experience of Migration and Globalisation on Contemporary Arts Practice. Um, he's curated um, large-scale shows at a number of venues, including Edge of Elsewhere, um, at Campbelltown Arts Centre, um, what else have I got down? Primavera in 2006. Um, and in 2010, he was appointed curator of the City of Sydney's Chinatown Public Art Plan. Scott Rankin, who is at the end, um, is a leader in the field of social 
and Cultural Innovation. He is the Creative Director and Co-Founder of renowned arts and social change company Picard. Um, he writes, directs and is often the executive producer on some of their, very, their large-scale projects. He's currently delivering new works um, in Tasmania and then moving around the state and then overseas. Um, his projects are often site-specific, long-term and multi-layered and complex, often working with focusing on different processes and dramaturgies. Um, Scott's, one of Scott's recent, or Big Art's recent projects, Hip Phone Sticking Out, was working with the Robin community and was at the Melbourne Festival last year. Um, Namajara was done with the Namajara family and Napaji Napaji with Trevor Jamison, which was part of the Melbourne Festival a few years before that. Um, and Scott's going to talk a bit about his work in the context of dissident and political art. So to throw it, open things up, I'm going to throw a question to Tammy. Um, we've, got, we've had a bit of a chat earlier about some of the things we're going to talk about, so we're going to have a bit of a conversation, and then we're going to, we've got about an hour, and then we're going to throw it open to questions from you guys. So throw up your questions, and hopefully at the end we'll have time to have a discussion. So Tammy, one of the things that I thought would be interesting for us to talk about is what does it mean to make political or dissident art. When people talk about Ai Weiwei, people talk about him being a political person on one hand and as artist on the other hand. Mm. Sometimes they meld the two together. Mm. Um, and I was interested to know from you what you think being a political artist is. Is it one thing? Is it different in China? Mm. Is it different here? Um, I don't know if you can really separate that, or in Aoi's mm. instance, I don't know if you can really separate that out. But, um, I mean, I think really he's come from a conceptual art kind of background, but um, his interests have moved towards um, investigating political mm. issues. Um, but I also think um, something that did come up in our conversation mm. earlier was um, the fact that... Um, I think you need to look at OOA in the context of the community and the generation of artists that he's involved in. And um, if he's an artist from Beijing, which is the political capital of, of China, um, the, it's also the city where the majority of artists are attracted to living in because there's a really large, thriving community with a lot of dialogue happening, in, particularly in his generation. Um, and a lot of... Um, it's a it's a community that has always been um, very engaged in social and political issues, and a lot of that is expressed through the art, because of the conditions of the contemporary art community um, scene kind of developing, um, really sort of since the 80s, since the opening up of China. So, I think um, you know you you can't really um, separate those two things. Um, in his instance, um, but you do have to look at the cultural context and the community context, and um, you know, sort of try and understand um, that he's not a lone voice in mm. the community. Yeah. Would you see him as representative of the type of work that's being made in that community, or do you think that he there's something particular and special that he's doing? or something in the way that the Western art world and the Western media have picked up on? Is the, is the, I suppose what I'm asking is the thing that people have picked up on in the West, is that 
representative of what's happening in those communities or is it something a little bit different? Mm, I think to a certain extent it is representative because certainly um, when I was working over there around 2000, um, you know, artists were very engaged with with um, politics, but not just politics, social conditions yeah. as well and cultural conditions. And they had a lot of concerns. Um, but I think um, perhaps because he's come to light sort of really since the uh, building of, like, the sort of preparation for the Olympics, he's become very public. And I think with the rise of social media and the internet, um, he's really one of those particular voices that's actually been kind of, I guess, uh, gone viral, really. Mm. He's also, I think, markedly more kind of uh, overtly oppositional in his discourse, mm. um, in his public kind of statements, than most Chinese um, artists. So it's that is something. That so there's something different yeah. in that that's to the community that he's working in that he's pushing those things further. Uh, well, he, I think he's certainly more overt in his statements. Mm. You, um, I mean, in comparison yeah. to Yang Fudong, for instance, yeah. mm. who's um, much more subtle with his expressions. Mm. It was interesting mm. you were saying earlier about the difference between living in Shanghai and the type of work that's made there to the type of work that's made in Beijing and that mm. the work in Beijing tends to be more political. Yes, yes. But I, but I think that you also have to admit that Ai Weiwei is a product of the West. Um, the, it, you know, that's what early on in the documentary Phil Tanari, who's the, who's the director of, of uh, UCCA in, in Beijing, says that it was, an, it was only until 2004 that he became... Um, became uh, he, his career he, his career began to blossom and he was the representative artist. He was the artist that every single China show after that had to have a work by Ai Weiwei mm. in it. So, you know, in a, in a way I kind of agree with what Tammy's saying but I also think that, that I would probably frame the way that um, who Ai Weiwei is slightly differently. Like right at the end of the documentaries when he's coming back into his compound he says to the reporters Go live your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, in, in some ways, it, the, the, he's a political artist by default, but when you think about the kinds of messages that he's trying to transmit to people, either through his work or through his activism, the message really is you have to be an individual. You have to, you have to live in the world as an individual. And so that's, I think, he becomes a political artist yeah. by, by default, as a product, some ways, of of the kind of um, uh, Western interest. There's a really lovely um, conversation between Ai Weiwei and a friend of his in a different documentary about him um, called Ai Weiwei, The Fake Case, where they're sitting in the garden in the compound that you see here and they're talking about a conversation they'd had a few years previously. And his friend says, oh, remember you said political art was terrible um, and there could be no first-class <laughs> political artists. And Ai Weiwei says, I've changed my mind. Um, I'm political now and I'm first-class. Um, and, it's a really sort of, and then he actually proceeds to fall asleep and they start taking photos of him. It's sort of, that was his final word on the topic. But I thought it was interesting that that idea of what being a political artist is has clearly shifted throughout his career and it is, Aaron, as you say, in response to being in a shifting environment um, and that he's changed his opinion of what that is over time and in some ways maybe his, the way that the Western art world has embraced him has 
enabled him to take that in new direction. But also, look, if you look at his um, his biography, he lived for quite a. Uh, for his formative years were in New York. Mm. So when you look at early f pictures of um, Ai Weiwei in New York, there's a, there's a one picture of him and Ginsburg. So his his training and he, even his mm. um uh, his training kind of mean has has meant that his worldview is completely different. Mm. So he's also formed through the West through through that those formative years in New York. Can you tell us about his relationship with his father Aaron and how? Well, we were talking earlier mm. on that that. Um, uh, you know, I came. I've come to this idea about this uh, Ai Weiwei's um, desire for individual freedoms as a result of thinking through the relationship that he had with his father. So early on in the documentary, there's a there's a little bit of a reference to his father, the poet, who was shipped off to Xinjiang province um, to be re-educated. And whilst you know his his life is quite interesting because at one moment he was um, uh, he was persecuted as uh, as part of the writers movement and then later on he become, he has to be re-educated and so um, all of those all of those there are a number of interviews that I Weiwei has has made with with other curators where he took where, where the kind of um, individual freedoms that a poet might be having as and writing poems as he's cleaning toilets in, in you know, communal toilet blocks are the types of um, freedoms that I think that individual freedoms that I think that Ai Weiwei is also talking about. Don't know if that made any sense. Mm? We do. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, could you talk a bit about, from your perspective, what this idea of being a political artist means? Is it something that resonates with you in your work, or? Is the model you're working with a sort of parallel to that? Um, I think it's uh, kind of dangerous to, to draw these false boundaries around things. So everybody's life is political and um, all art is made in a community. Um, it could be a highly you know, financed community for a particular demographic in a particular set of suburbs in a particular country. Uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're very gently conforming or you're very uh, proactively confronting, they're both actions of one sort or another. And, you know, we live for 600,000 hours and as, as human beings on high-protein diets and, and then we're dead. And in that time, um, we'll be sleeping a bit, we'll be having sex, we'll be, you know, driving to the movies and... For a little bit of it, we'll be trying to find ways of expressing ourselves, you know, with elegance in a way that doesn't embarrass us. I do a lot of embarrassing yeah. myself in my own That's work, hard. But, um, and, and that can be, um, you know, in, in a world that is not about uh, defining yourself as an artist or uh, making a living from it, or it can be amateur, it can be hobby, it can be all kinds of things. And we layer a whole lot of judgments on it, on this activity, which is an expression of self out in the public domain and a statistician in their work looking at the basis for new social policy, which is, um, you know, comes from Socius and Politeu as two words, meaning policing of the brothers um, or the brotherhood. And statistici statisticians will have the opportunity to come up with the data 
um, and overlay that with other data to make, so that somebody can make some decisions about what is a good way to police the brotherhood. And then, and that's the world of politics. And somebody else, as an artist, might go, blah, you know, <laughs> as an expression of self. And it's a tremendous privilege. You won't be paid much money to do it, and the statistician will get more. But um, it is a freedom to be expressive of your particular journey. Now, in that context, um, there is work that is overtly uh, aimed at the, le the levers of the political levers of policy, if you like, or the political levers of freedom. And there is work that is covertly um, aimed at that. And I personally think that we're fed uh, a, a fast food diet of activism rather than a nourishing, deep view. So we, we go for the impact, which is the language of war, rather than go for um, depth, which is the language of real progress. And I think it, it's interesting to see him in that, that particular film struggling with those two mm -hmm. ideas of... The depth of an elder in the art form, he's probably got, I don't know, 100,000 hours left to go. Trying to pass on something exquisite and brilliant and trying to say something as an elder, you know, for, for younger artists to come through and pick the idea up. Now, I think the deep idea, I'll shut up in a second, the deep ideas, uh, the, the ones that are nourishing, the ones, I mean, I might have had three out of, I, might, I probably had 16,000 shallow ideas. And they're the ones that are full of my ego and they're full of my fear of how you'll judge me right now. And the, the deep ideas, the ones of depth of me wanting to say, look, in this room is more talent than is needed to change democracy. You know, can I give you something that is deep, that is about progress, rather than about the immediacy of fast food activism? And, you know, so the question, looked at in that context, if it makes any sense the way you said about what you said, um, it's, it's a non-question for me. Yeah. You know, it's, it's false and it, and it trips people up and they, they lose a decade of their time as they mm -hmm. argue about it, which is a delay on, you know... Trying to yeah, fast the actual forward expression. through. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think the thing that was interesting for me doing research is I think Ai Weiwei sort of hasn't got a whole... He changes how he feels about that. And one of the things I thought was interesting watching the documentary is how he's got a foot in this sort of contemporary art world which is a complex very moneyed space that has a lot of problems with it mm -hmm. um, whilst making I suppose work in a very unique context uh, which I suppose is the deeper side of the work and I think you know a lot of people would probably agree that people know more know who Ai Weiwei is without knowing much about his work and one mm -hmm. of the things that this documentary has done is it's enabled people to see more of what his work is and where he's making that work and what that context is. But, I mean, I think there is a tension in the film about whether it is something he's making those sort of, as you would say, sort of fast food political comments and where's the deeper side to it. Mm. And the different pressures coming at him change that in a way. Yeah, and I think that's something that Ai Weiwei very much has to negotiate yeah. in his life and mm. his practice. Mm. And that's why I don't quite agree, Aaron, with what you said about um, the fact that IOA is, you know, a product of the West. Um, I think you a lot dissident. Of You're just being a dissident. And, uh, but we need that. <laughs> <laughs> we need controversy and dissidence. Yeah. I think he's partly that. And the way he's kind of, uh, he's often constructed and kind of received in the West in a certain way. Um, but I think as a public figure in China, his position is actually more complex mm. than that. 
and also in the different uh, ways he kind of operates, be it through his work, through his filmmaking, through his tweeting or whatever, uh, he also addresses different audiences in different ways. And some of the ways he addresses Chinese audiences, say, through his documentary mm. work, is quite different to the way he would talk to Western press. Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. you're probably right. I think that he's um, quite... is well aware of his audiences. Mm. Yeah. I, I think maybe his celebrityhood is a product of the West in, in the way he's been represented. Yeah, and I think part of what Alison Clayman set out to do with this film was to mm. try to get beyond that kind mm. of one-dimensional yeah. image um, of dissident artists, whatever that means, which is often how he's presented, mm. you know, in Western news reports. Mm. I mean, it's hard. If you make a film about somebody, the celebrity status is built by doing that, so it's a little bit of a hard situation to take them seriously and to make a film about them. You're necessarily pushing that further. I mean, one of the things that I think for me really works which really resonates with me, is the humour in his work. Um, it's often terribly funny. Um, mm. And, Scott, I was listening to an interview with you this morning where you talked about the importance of humour. Do you sort of see that connection between your work and his work? That uh, That's really generous of you. Um, <laughs> that's what him. I'm here for. <laughs> Yeah, he would be impressed that you've drawn that announcement. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I w there are very light, funny moments in some of your work and some of that kind of campness and kind of which is different to his, but it is using comedy to express something which maybe has deeper levels to it. It helps people find a way into something. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, a couple of thoughts at once, but... Um, you know, David Mamet talks about the purpose of... Um, you're probably alluding to my theatre work rather than the film work of yes, the company. Yes, I am theatre work, sorry. Um, he talks about um, the, the purpose of theatre being to inspire cleansing awe. And they're, you know, they're three really interesting words when you put them together, rather than to, to convince people. And for inspiration, for somebody to be filled with, with something new, um, you have to... You have to create a moment in which the, you know, it depends how you view it, but their ego boundaries relax for a moment for something new to, to come in that challenges the picture they have of themselves. And I think it happens in live theatre um, en masse, and it's the, it's the moment of ritual and sort of authenticity and the capacity to involuntarily weep or involuntarily guffaw is, is a, a trip of the ego. And um, great writing, I think, um, and great creating of ritual um, makes a, a use of those two things. Comedy is most useful when something is um, unbearably dark and, and um, weeping, you know, is sort of the opposite. So it's counterintuitive in a way. And so, yes, in watching the, the sparkle, in, I mean, just in both his self-commentary, the commentary about him and... Um, and the work he was making, and you can see that he's pretty control-centred. Mm. Um, there is a lot. There is a, a real dexterity and literacy about those tasks, about those things, those mm. those tools, if you like. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that? And this is really a question to everybody. I mean, you talk about that in the sense in relation to theatre. Obviously, tweeting and the internet 
and sort of video are very important to Awe Wade. Do you think that he's found an audience and a way of manipulating those things in a way on the web? That that's something that... I mean, I, he talks a lot about how the web, the internet is his key form and that's where he makes his work. And he's made... He's, I'm not making much sense here. He's sort of... He's managed to find an audience and bring them together in a way that you don't in a theatre, but that audience is a sort of alone getting mm. the tweets, but they're having a common experience in a way. So you're suggesting that he's reaching out to he's a new public? he's reaching out to a new public in a way yes. and maybe using some of those more traditional ways of engaging with them, but mm. through tweeting or videography mm. or... And using those things in a, I suppose, a new way. Is that different to what other artists are doing? Hmm. Maybe not. I, look, I mean, I think, um, just jumping in because yeah. you'll have probably... No, jump in. I think that there is a, a, a profound addiction to information currently yeah. that, mm -hmm. is, um, that is moderately useful, but we're blinded by it and... Um, you know, it's like noise and, um, and quiet is often much more useful mm. or um, to, to not say much and then say something very considered. Now, like Bill Shorten. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. Um, so the, the, and, and it's easy for me to sit here and, and say this, that the, um, but in the... Uh, the desperation of change or the hunger for change, and he mm. talks about being ravenous, for, or no, maybe I wrote that late last night, but there was a <laughs> sort of a ravenous nature of, you know, his um, desire for change. Um, it's, you know, these are great tools and information is a great thing, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Mm. And, and I think we in the West respond, you know, in a very uh, binary way to information because it's like sugar to us and um, <laughs> we should really be divesting ourselves of... Um, of that addiction and dipping into information in really um, as though it's gold rather than, um, you know, cheap plastic. Do you know what I mean? Like we mm. find the information, find the thing that distills the information and, and, you know, the poetry in the information rather than just tonnes of stuff coming at you or putting out tonnes of stuff. I think the technologies, you know, they're not... The, it's not the most interesting shift in technology in human history, but it's certainly... You know, it's on, it's on a par with the whistle. You know, it's on, it's on a par with the first, um, you know, adoption of harmony in hundreds of thousands of years ago, and there will be a better one soon. Mm. It's 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 good, but let's not be addicted. Mm. So he uses it, mm. and it's easy for me to say. It's yeah. too late for the addiction bit for many of us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know if I'm saying too much, but no. So if. No. If you think of, um, let's talk, talk about Australia for a second in, in its profound, man, the manipulation that's going on around um, fanaticism and around ISIS. And, um, and if you think about, you know, community artists or political artists, there's a desire to change that's, that's core to their being. And there's a desire to change in... Uh, in a lot of the fanatical organisations as well. And the desire to change in, in you know, community artists or in political artists or whatever, it's sort of... You, 
you know, love-based. And there's a, it's a fine line between love and fanaticism. And, um, and, we ha and change is a dangerous thing to talk about because it's a very imposing thing. It's coming from something very close to self-righteousness on either side of the thing. So, you know, there is some level of the usefulness of information and really considered information, but information is so easily misused that you can end up in, in the dangerous part of love or the dangerous part of, you know, fanaticism very easily. So there are, there are much deeper ways of considering information that are much more important than the information itself, if that makes sense. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I c I'll try and say it more simply later. <laughs> Tammy, you were kind of nodding before. Was there something that... I can't remember what um, you were nodding about. Oh, I, I think I was responding <laughs> yeah. to um, just that, the idea of um, how we're surrounded by um, a lot of superficial information, yeah. the noise that we're surrounded by. And I guess that's kind of a reflection of... Um, greater society really because you know everything's quite disposable yeah. in the way we sort of live and we move house quite often and mm. you know just everything is very temporary and short-lived um, and it's the way it's kind of dominant. Yeah I mean it's interesting when Aweiwei talks about tweeting and events and how in some ways he gives the impression that it's quite offhand mm. that he had an idea the night before and now he's tweeting about it mm. and now people are going to turn up but I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's disingenuous, but there is something about the immediacy of that that he's using, but mm. th there's clearly an overall, mm. I don't know, if it's you like call a it a strategy or a... Well, I, I mean, it's also the power of the netizen, which is mm. not something which we truly understand yeah. here. Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you just have to look at the... And, and to support your disagreement with me, before the Sichuan earthquake, mm. um, that work... Um, could only have been done mm. by by somebody yes. like him using the using, internet. Uh, the internet. Mm. Yeah, I think I mean you really have to understand Iwai's use of Twitter and embrace of Twitter and celebration of Twitter in a Chinese context. Um, you know, it's it's not just the fact that he can sit there and you know pump out all this yep. stuff like we all do. Like, oh my God, there's a guy on the bus that's really annoying. That's not what he's kind yeah, of can celebrating. Yeah, can you and also I mean. Go on, and then I've got a question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's working in an environment where information still is very tightly controlled, mm -hmm. um, particularly when it comes to public events. And, um, and yeah, getting back to the Sichuan earthquake, yeah. I mean, it's a classic example. You know, when that first happened, the casualty figures and so on were, were quite uh, openly reported in China. But as soon as it started coming out that some of the casualty figures related to children were related to the fact that those schools was so badly constructed because of corruption. As soon as that story came out, the, it, the, all discussion about that in the media in China was shut down. You know, and I was working in Chinese yeah. media at the time. You know, it was just remarkable the way that story kind of disappeared. So if it wasn't for people like um, Ai Weiwei and, and many other people mm. like him, he's not the only one yeah. by any means, and these technologies, the point is this information would not get out mm. in China. It just would not get out because uh, the, the, the media, through various mechanisms, is still very much uh, controlled. And I think that's something you have to really understand when you, uh, you know, hear the way that he talks about um, Twitter and the way that Twitter is kind of 
um, has been used and, and celebrated in China. And the way that he's gone about very self-consciously constructing an audience by using Twitter, which is going back to what you were yeah. saying before. I mean, what could, it would be useful, I think, if you could explain to me and to the audience how, I mean, my understanding is not everybody has access to Twitter. So he's talking to a particular audience. Well, that time period, yeah. more people had access to Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Twitter itself. And now is it's, there's less access. Yeah. So we're proxy servers. Yeah. Yeah. And that yeah. in itself is not particularly illegal, is that right? It's just kind of illegal? Well, it's, yeah, grey. But it's like us And doing they've Netflix. actually taken a step um, of blocking those VPNs in yeah. recent times as well. So. But you also, I mean, one of the, but, but a vast, I mean, if there, are, if there are a billion people in China, not all of their communications via Twitter are going to be, have a political bent. So that there is... Of course, absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm talking about the way he's using yeah. specifically, yeah. Of social media that they use. But I think one of the things that the f is interesting about this film is that it captures also a moment, that particular moment in the late, sort of mid to late 2000s when... And that's when you lived there. Yeah, and, when the, and the film was being yeah. made, yeah. That really, uh, there was a sense that these new technologies um, related to the internet and also digital cameras... Um, were kind of carving a new kind of space where information could be shared and things could be said that had not been shared and said before. And I think um, w one of the things that's uh, disturbing looking at this film now from the perspective of 2015 is in some ways that moment I think people are increasingly feeling has passed because restrictions have been massively stepped up since 2011. His arrest was the really... Uh, there was many arrests during that early 2011 period, and that was the beginning of a massive ramping up of control um, over public discourse in China. And uh, many forms of social communication have been blocked or are much more heavily monitored or more heavily censored. Um, and, and many more people have been arrested too since that time. Gorgian being a good example, yeah, the Australian um, painter, artist, yeah, or Chinese artist who's based in Australia. Yeah, he's one of many who's been um, detained. Fortunately, you know, most of the well-known ones get released after a fairly short period, but there's a lot of people uh, who are a lot less well-known who are not released, who never come out, you know, or come out after a very long time. I mean, I suppose this is a bit of a side, but do you think that the the noise that was made in the West had much of an impact on his release? That's Probably. Really it's very hard to know. Yeah. I mean, you don't... But well, I think that the um, possibly the lead-up to it was one of the precursors for his arrest. So it happened while he was... Um, direct, while, whilst the, ta the Tate... The Tate was... Mm. Mm. Yeah. And but Michel Bourne and all of those things were happening at the same, at the same time. Mm. But his public profile has probably protected him to a degree in terms of, you know, he was released after just under three yeah. months and he wasn't perhaps subject to the degree of torture yeah. that certain people have been subjected to, uh, but lesser known people have yeah. been subjected to. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that is interesting is that his work is often in the West. We know him very much, I suppose, as an installation artist. But he makes documentary films and uses 
video a lot. Um, he has his own personal videographer, is that right, who was there with him for a lot of the stuff that was filmed um, for this documentary. It would be interesting to hear, particularly from you, Dan, about the context that he's working in as a documentary maker and where he fits, I suppose, into that scene in China. Mm. And is that what he's known for in China more or...? I think he's probably best known in China for his tweeting okay. <laughs> and his sort of public yeah. events. Yeah. Because mm. um, his work isn't shown in China. You mean outside of the art community? Outside the art yeah. community, yeah, in the yeah. general public. It's a sort of, you know... Um, I hesitate to use the word clown, but clown in a, in a kind of positive sense. He's mm. sort of this figure that makes yeah. fun of, yeah. you know, of authority. It's like a social critique. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, humorous satire. Humorous yeah. satire, yeah. yes. Uh, but his documentary work, um, yeah, is, is an aspect of his um, kind of practice that is not as well known uh, outside of yeah. China because those films, as we were talking about, Aaron, um, beforehand, his documentary works are very much made... I think for a Chinese audience, you know, they very directly address particular issues that are happening uh, and events at that time. Yeah. Um, so we saw in the, this documentary, he, was, he made a film about going down to Sichuan, filing the complaint about being assaulted mm. and so on. So that's kind of typical of the kind of things, the, the, these very kind of immediate films about kind of what's happening um, in the moment. And again, like his documentary practice was part of this... Um, bigger moment that was happening in China, particularly in the 2000s, where there was a lot of this kind of uh, documentary work mm -hmm. being made um, using digital video technologies, um, exploring issues and situations that had really not been placed on screen mm -hmm. before. Uh, and those films are still being made, but like everything else in China, there's been uh, something of a smothering mm. of that uh, kind of activity over the last couple of years um, through a lot of things. Various people have been detained. Um, a whole series of independent film festivals in China have been shut down since mm -hmm. 2011. The Xinting's one recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in Beijing, uh, also in Nanjing, um, down in Kunming. So uh, I think there was very much a sense on the part of the authorities, a bit like with Ai Weiwei and his tweeting, there was the audience for these things was getting a bit too big for comfort. And so it was mm. time to kind of reel things in a little bit. That sort of segues to my ACME question about, I mean, what the role of moving image or videography or film or is in political art? Is it a particularly useful media? Um, is there something about its immediacy, the way you can send it around the world, the way that the general public relates to it, that makes it something that works well if you want to make a statement, if you want to delve into something. Mm. I suppose it's in a general way, but also to Scott, the way that you use film and video in your work, whether it's more part of the process, whether it's something mm. that you feel that audiences relate to in a different way. Mm. Can, can yep. I make a Yes. Yeah, I'd just like to say that, um, you know, look, sort of going back yeah. when video was starting to become accessible mm. and affordable for artists to actually get access to in China, um, that documentation was really a very important part of the process, mostly for the fact that um, performance art mm. or p works that that was deemed as sort of controversial by the authorities um, needed to be documented yeah. by the artist. Otherwise, it, it was actually evidence that so it, it's the that witness it part of it. That's yeah, exactly. Mm. So I think that that actually formed a big part of the contemporary art scene. Mm. Um, quite early on. Um. And it's interesting, as his hand... 
the the distribution model is interesting for me. That and that harks back to that that period where it was underground. So when those young reporters come into the studio, here take some of these mm. for your friends. Mm. You know, that's that's as important I think as having um, an online presence. Yeah, mm. I mean it's easy to get out there. It's easy to capture something yeah. in the moment. Mm. So it's not capital A art as we no. understand mm. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I had um, friends in the late 90s that put on the first performance art festival in China and it, they had to... The whole thing was a, a secret performance art festival mm. and they went to a um, village near Sichuan and hired a bus and... Mm. Um, it was a group of 20 of them and they just behaved like a group of friends um, and they went to an abandoned house and actually enacted this performance mm. art festival and they videoed the whole thing until the authorities arrived to find out what they were doing and they just said we're on holidays, we're filming we're ourselves, filming so. ourselves, having fun and um, there was even actually international performance artists involved in the, the whole um, process and some of them actually got arrested just because they couldn't really understand what they were doing. Um, but that was actually the video documentation of that first secret performance art festival is really important because there was no other documentation of that, that event. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I'll just talk about Australian context and the idea of change. Um, I mean, if we acknowledge amongst ourselves this evening that um, Fifty-one point eight percent of all the young people who are locked up in Australia, all the children in jail, uh, Aboriginal. Um, we have suddenly a responsibility amongst us as a small group of friends for change. It's an invisible story, and we're doing nothing about it. If we look at politically what's happening as we speak to strip out the funding from remote remote communities in in Australia. It's the ongoing genocide designed to, to destroy culture and language of, you know, a hundred nations that are spread over the continent. And we have now an obligation to do something or ignore it and go home. If we think that, um, you know, there, there are 1.3 million seafarers working internationally to bring our Samsung gear and our flat screens, etc., to us, 850,000 of those um, tonight are working as slaves to bring us our first world goods. We have an obligation. Now, where we, I think, get hung up as artists and um, change agents and arts workers is that we, we think of content and we're addicted to that as well. And um, the most important place that we can work as artists is, is in the process. And I would say it's a 70-30 split. All the glory is in the content. That's where you get your reviews and your pats on the back and, you know, your whiskey after the show or whatever. Um, but... The Hard Yards is done in really savvy dramatur political dramaturgy or community dramaturgy, looking at um, how do we get from where we are now with those 51.8% of young people to significant change. And um, artists have a, th have a, a very um, important role to play, and arts organisations do as well. And the way that we divide it up in terms of big art working on the, these kinds of invisible stories or invisible issues is to go, okay, well, the journey of the individual who's going through this issue, the kid in jail or whatever, is the only thing that matters and that they go through some level of change. And, and if that happens, it's, it's a failed project. 
and then the, what happens to the community around them, the, where they live, the systems they're involved in and how that changes, that's the only thing that matters. And if those two things happen successfully, it's a failed project. If, if you then think about the social policy um, nationally and the levers that, that do shift things over time and you target your art making towards that and the, the dramaturgy of the process towards that, and that changes, so you've got three ducks in a line, it's still a failed project. If you then look at the quality and the beauty um, and the elegance of the art that moves people authentically, made with those groups and for those groups, in the, out in the public domain, that's four in a row and it's getting to be successful. And the last one is that the transfer of information and knowledge and, the lack and, and not being addicted to the IP and passing it on and teaching younger artists or whatever. But if you get those five things happen, that's our particular approach to long-term change and projects therefore need to take five years or more. And he talks a, lo a lot about incremental change and, and working, you know, that it takes a long time. And Martin Luther King talks about the moral arc of the universe is long, but it does bend towards um, justice. To me, that's the most incredible place to work as a person expressing themselves and, you know, um, the key to it is not being addicted to the content of what you make and therefore the platforms in which it sits. Now we use all kinds of everything we can get our hands on, sometimes well and sometimes badly, but in the end it's, it's the ritual and the authenticity and the intimacy that's created amongst human beings in this crazy village, you know, that is humanity or something. Uh, I hope that's not too wanky. But. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a love, there was a lovely interview that I, when I was listening to with Ai Weiwei where he sort of moves from saying he's an artist to he's influential. And for him, that was a different thing. He'd moved for... And his friends sort of said, well, you know, are you going to start a party? And he's like, oh, I'm not sure about that. But, you know, I'm influential and I can make change. And that was post being in prison. It was like he'd realised that there were things that he could do that maybe it is part of that arc you talk about, that yeah. he's found a new place. That yeah, and, and, you know, I mean, ideas are incredible things. Almost all of them are mediocre because we don't commit to discovering them, but mm. they are just the most amazing things that live in this other universe that come from me to you, mm. you know. And, and I don't think it's untrue that it's the small group of friends that changes the world. I think that's, that's true. It's a small group of friends who, who really savvily uses technology at the right moment, and that's great you know but um, in the end it's that the intensity of the commitment and the brilliance of the idea you know it's stuff of genius but you know everyone's a genius in in their own way and everyone's a dunce so I, Mark Twain said something about that once that I've forgotten Should we hang on he okay. said he said we're all stupid just on different subjects <laughs> excellent makes us all feel better should we open up to questions? People have questions or comments. Sean has a roving mic. And there's another roving mic on both sides. Come on, somebody has to put their hand up first. Thank you very much. I always like guilting people into this. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I had... Um just watching watching the documentary, I was sort of struck by the narrative um, of Ai Weiwei and Ai Lao, his son. Um, and when he was sort of being questioned about how, how Ai Lao came about, um, his comment was that it's an undesirable situation, but sometimes these things happened. 
And to me, that comment sort of smacked of party rhetoric. Um, <laughs> and so I, and then that sort of relationship was used in, um, towards the end of the documentary to sort of um, create a positive, optimistic narrative. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on that sort of relationship and that narrative being included in the documentary. I, I read it completely differently. I th I, how I read that is that it's um, these things happen when you have have an affair. Yeah, that's, that's how I took it too. I did slightly read it your way though. I suppose his situation isn't unprecedented. Yeah. I don't know. But I think sometimes. It's normally a difficult situation. You make the best of it. And I just wondered why then that narrative was included in this. Dan, you interviewed her. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I actually asked the director the same question when, um, when she was out here for the Melbourne Film Festival a couple of years ago when the film uh, debuted out here. And um, I asked her about that kind of narrative strand because it does occupy a kind of slightly weird place in the film mm. it's yeah mm. and it's not really explained either um this kid sort of just appears and but her comment was um when I asked her about that from memory she said something along the lines of she felt she couldn't leave um the child out of the film um because you know the fact that he's become a father is obviously very personally significant as it would be um for anyone um and you know, some people knew about his child, so to not include it in the film would be, you know, perhaps odd. Um, but Iowaway, she felt, was not very comfortable talking about it publicly, um, and I think you get a sense of that in the film. Uh, he does talk about it, but he's sort of slightly... He doesn't really answer, like, go into too much detail. Yeah, he sort of sidesteps the yeah. questions. but I think that might be a cultural thing as well, like, maybe slightly... I think most people would be awkward. Yeah. Well, and... On his part? Um, well, possibly. <laughs> Depends what your moral position on it is, I guess. But to answer the question why it was in the film, I think she felt it had to be there, but she didn't feel that she could kind of probe further into it. And I think she was also... The filmmaker was wary about sort of, you know, introducing a kind of soap opera element, kind of, you know, what does the wife think, who's the girlfriend and all that kind of business. So, I do think so. Yeah. No, no, it no, links in with that father-son narrative that's there anyway. Yeah. yeah. The, the other narrative that I, I think it linked into was this, this desire for transparency. So you, you mm. got asked the question, you got asked a direct question, mm. and he answered in, it in a way which was maybe partly obfuscated, but he still answered, answered the question. So I think I, he was I also embarrassed talking about it publicly to media and also in the film because of his wife, mm. his wife's feelings, I mean. Mm. So, you know, it's all very well to him, for him to talk about it because he gets the chance to talk on camera, but... Um, I think he was also conscious of his wife's feelings, perhaps a bit late in the day, given he'd already had a child. But I think that was part of it as well. I just found him as a public figure pushing for transparency and accountability. It was a little bit sort of, I think, that's really... I think it's really interesting to think about what's happening right now. So we're also addicted... Um, 
to intentionality in a lot of the work we make, where we, we try and we control freaks about what's put out there. And so there's a little glitch in the film that is maybe, you know, it's working at 90, 90% and somebody, if they were doing their job, they might have just done a little bit of script analysis early and that might have been out. But it's triggered, you know, the most interesting discussion in a way this evening and a really smart question in you. And, and I, th I think um, accidents, mistakes, um, B-grade moments, certainly they're, they're, they make the best things happen in the shows that I'm responsible <laughs> for. So, you know, we shouldn't be addicted to intentionality in that out of that's because that's where discussion comes from. But I think he was probably also nervous about the way it might be used against him. And one of the things he's been accused of by the authorities is bigamy. <laughs> so um, I think there was that aspect to it as well. Uh, so you've got to bear that in mind about why he may have been hesitant um, about talking about it. There's another question. Oh, this, yes. Yeah. Aaron, you mentioned um, netizens previously and we have talked a little bit about social media and uh, for social change in China. Um, do you believe that Ai Weiwei is the mouthpiece for the Chinese netizens? Um, maybe for particular kinds of issues and discussions, but as I was saying before, for a country with over a billion people, the conversations that will happen through its netizens aren't always going to be always directed to this kind of political situation. You know, it could be, as we've seen in the Western media, it could be um, the loss of respect for elders, or you know, it could, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of different conversations that that, that could be happening. Um, so, but I, I pr probably think that he is the mouthpiece for a certain kind of conversation. Mm. Maybe less so now, but yeah. but at least when this was being produced. Yeah, talking about the the east and the west, um, and um, and globalism within within that structure. Um, some of the symbolism in the film, the grass mud horse and um, the river crab, um, it was born out of the uh, 2009 censorship, internet censorship. Um, I don't know if I should, uh, do, do you know, and, and, and for some people it's hard to read that, that symbolism within the film. I don't know if other people were aware of that, the grass mud horse. Phenomena and the song at the end, and so I think still we're still learning how to read these symbols, um, these Chinese symbols, and so. Which makes it goes back to mm. the question of audience mm. earlier on. That mm. There are many audiences for this for, for uh, these kinds of activities, and they're read very differently. Um, and it also makes it more interesting, actually, it, in in a way, doesn't it? That there are things that that can be misinterpreted within. Within a um, with, within the documentary. Mm. So in the Ai Weiwei has used some of these uh, viral symbolism from the blogosphere in China, and he's actually taking it into mainstream art and design into his work. So um, in a way, that's um, taking you know translating what's actually going on in China, uh, grassroots level, into yeah into yeah, into mm. this room tonight. We had a question at the back, or did I imagine that? I think I had, but Sean tells me time's up anyway. So if you did have one, you can't anymore. It's not on. 
I'd like to thank our panel, um, some of whom have come from Sydney and Tasmania, two closest cities they've flown in from. Thank you very much, Scott and Aaron. And thank you, Dan and Tammy, from coming across the city. Um, and thank you all for coming tonight. Um, I should mention that this screening and talk has been supported by the Australian China Council, and it's part of the broader China Up Close program. Um, I encourage you to all see Yang Fadong's exhibition, which is down in Gallery 1, if you haven't already seen it. I think we have one more screening of Yang Fudong's Seven Intellectuals. I'm just looking at Yolanda to tell me I'm right. When is that? Which is the 8th of March. Um, it is four and a half hours, um, but people have been coming and loving it and staying for the whole four and a half hours, which is a testament to how strong the work is. Um, we have other screenings and panels. Um, so come along if you're interested. Um, this is our you know, first focus on China and on an artist like King Fadong and on Chinese films. So thank you very much for coming and have a lovely evening. You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to ACME channel and the ACME website.